I have a question for you. What kind of Savior do you want? What kind of Savior do you want? Now imagine for a moment that you have been out exploring in the high country and you come across a mine shaft, which is something that is quite likely to happen. Now, you've been told, don't go down mine shafts. You've been told it's really bad, it's really dangerous, you will get hurt or you will die. You shouldn't do it. But what do you do? You go down the mine shaft. And surprise, surprise, you get stuck. You are stuck in this deep hole. I'm imagining a spot where uh, you can see the light above. You know that there's light. You know the surface is up there, but you are stuck in the hole. And you can't get out. Now, what kind of savior do you want at that moment? What are you looking for? What do you need? I th- what's that? A rope, that's a good kind of saviour, yeah. <laughs> but I think as we, as we think about it, the kind of saviour that you want is not someone who will come and speak to you and tell you about your problem, but not actually help you. We, I know that I'm in trouble, I need help. Or perhaps do you want someone who will lift you halfway up the hole and just leave you there, halfway, between the top and the bottom? That's no use as a saviour. What about somebody who will lift you out of the hole, but only for a time? You can come out for a bit, but they put you back in again. That's no saviour in the long run. might be nice for a time, but you're left wanting a permanent salvation. Somebody who will take you out of the hole, free you from the pit, as we, uh, in God's providence this morning, uh, heard from in Psalm 30. Lift me out of the pit is the cry of the psalmist to the Lord. We want complete saviors, saviors who are the complete package, not saviors who will take us halfway or who will just make us feel better about our predicament or ones that are only temporary. Judges keeps us hungering for a complete saviour, a better saviour than the flawed people that were raised up as judges in that time. God used them, God raised them up. God blessed his people through them, but they were flawed and they were temporary. And so this morning we're coming to talk about Tola and Jair. I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. I'm pronouncing it Jair because it sounds more exotic. (laughs) As we've been going through judges, you know, recently Deborah and Barak have raised our eyebrows. Gideon made us shake our heads. Abimelech made us feel sick. So what's next in this cavalcade of flawed deliverers? What awful chapter will follow next? We're left wondering. After Abimelech, thankfully, we have a reprieve, a little opportunity to kind of catch our breath. Maybe things aren't as bad as all that. We have an opportunity to catch our breath with two judges that seem insignificant compared to what has come and gone, and it gives us a little interlude in our downward spiral of despair. Now, even though it's a reprieve, it's a short reprieve. We don't get much on these judges, we get a handful of verses. Thankfully, we get more on them than on Shamgar. Shamgar, it's almost like a half verse, but we get a little bit more than Shamgar, but not much. After the time of Abimelech, 
a man of Issachar named Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shemir, in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shemir. Okay. After Abimelech, as I've just mentioned, after what Abimelech put the people through, this was a welcome change. If you don't remember what happened with Abimelech, he hired thugs to force his will on people by violence. He massacred his 70 brothers to secure a kingship position. He went to war over reports that people were talking bad about him. He indiscriminately killed non-combatants. I think there's something that's been on our mind recently as we've heard about what's going on overseas. It's brought to the fore. Well, if we remember what happened last week, Abimelech was doing that all over the place. Everybody shut up in the tower of Shechem. He burned everybody. Indiscriminately destroyed non-combatants. He was a real piece of work and God brought justice to Abimelech and those who helped him. Many of us know that feeling of relief when a bad boss or, or a bad politician moves on. We know that somebody just as bad could potentially take the position, but even so, there's still a sigh of relief. Uh, maybe there is hope. So after Abimelech, Tola actually provides some of that hope. He raises, rises to save Israel. He's a fellow from Ephraim, one of the biggest tribes in Israel. And then in case you hadn't noticed at this point, as we've been making way through the judges, each of the judges comes from a different part of Israel. By the time we get to the end, we will have had judges from 12 different parts of Israel. It doesn't neatly match up with the 12 tribes, but I think that that's the intention of the authors are trying to say, look, here's these 12 judges that represented the, the nation of Israel. So Tola is from Ephraim. Tola saved Israel. We don't get any detail about how he saved Israel, only that he did. And we're just glad that he's not Abimelech. His salvation meant 23 years of his leadership, and presumably this brought some kind of stability to the region. But he still leaves us wanting a saviour who can outdo 23 years. So next we come to another saviour, Jair. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who Israel who led Israel 22 years. So he's, he's gone one less. We want more. We want longer-term saviors, but this guy is going shorter. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day is called Havioth, Havioth Jir, where Jair. So when Jair died, he was buried in Camon. So Gilead is the region is in the Transjordan, so it's across the river. If you're looking at a map, it's you know to the um, east, to the to the east, to the um, I'm getting my, myself mixed up. To the right hand side, if you're looking at a map of Israel, to the right hand side of Israel. So this is one of the first regions that was conquered when Israel was coming into the, to the land. And so Jair and his family is in that area. Jair has led Israel in some description, just in some way. But he's a, he's a wealthy guy. He's a powerful family. If, if I could uh, try and translate this into modern language, he had 30, 30 sons who, and each of them drove a G-wagon and was a mayor of a town. So they're well-off, 
they are in positions of authority and power. This is a kind of a, a, a dynastic thing going on here, where this very powerful family has control over this region. And so they, we're left uh, kind of thinking about this. We go, well, aren't they blessed for their position and their wealth? Or maybe we go, is, is this God's blessing or is this Jair kingdom building for self-serving reasons? If you remember, Gideon and his 70 sons and what he was doing with his kids, we are kind of, we're wondering, is this the right way to go? Multiple wives were presumably involved to have 30 kids. Uh, I don't know that uh, there would be any woman out there who would like to have 30 sons, let alone presumably there were daughters as well in the mix. So presumably Jair has um, multiple wives, which is not a good way to go. And he has, um, yeah, and he's kind of built this, building this dynasty like a king. There's nothing wrong with big family. There's nothing wrong with, a strong, wrong with a strong legacy. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with having authority. But when we put all these things together and we have this not long after the story of Gideon, this have some big question marks over it. What's going on here? There's something, this is something about wealth and prestige that we need to remember. And that is you cannot presume to know whether or not it is God's blessing or ill-gotten gain. Despite the cultural propaganda of our day, it is okay to be wealthy. It is okay to have, and it is okay that some people do not have. Some people will have a little, some people will have a lot. And often the people with little are happier than the people who have a lot. But there's not something inherently wrong with blessing and wealth from God. The question we have to ask is, A, how did you get it? And B, how are you using it? We have to look at the outworking to find if there is an issue. How do people use their wealth and their power and their influence? Do they use it to glorify God and bless others, or do they use it for self-aggrandizement? Did they gain their wealth uh, legitimately, or did they gain their wealth from taking from people or swindling people or uh, with uh, sinful endeavors? We have a sneaking feeling that Jair might have been using his wealth and power for self-promotion. But we're not given enough details, so we can't pronounce judgment. But this is what Judges does to us as a book. It, it goes wrong so often that we don't trust anybody anymore. We know how bad it can get and how quick it can change. And so every time we read one, every little detail in Judges, we're going, oh, maybe, uh, may, it looks good but we don't trust anybody. But notice here as well that there's no peace mentioned for Tola and Jair. Both of these judges reign 20, 23 years and 22 years respectively, but there's no peace mentioned. We get peace mentioned with Othniel. He brought peace. Ehud brought, brought peace. Deborah and Barak brought, brought peace. And Gideon brought peace. But here we don't get any mention of peace. Is it just an omission by the author? Kind of didn't bother? Or is this a sign of where things are going in the book? Judges, here we have judges that save and lead, but the peace is missing. And it leaves us wanting more. 22, 23 years and 22 years are a decent run, 
a good baseline, but surely we can do better than this. Surely there are, that we can get saviors that last a longer time. Surely God's people that can have a savior that is more permanent. Can God's people have a savior that brings peace? Can God's people have a savior that brings not just a temporary peace for a few years, but an everlasting peace? Can God's people have a savior that isn't interested in self-aggrandizement, self-promotion, or isn't interested in dynastic endeavors? Is it possible for God's people to have a, a savior who is faithful to the Lord at every turn? Next, as we keep moving through our passion, we're going to see that there is continued evil and another confession. Continued evil and another confession. After this uh, short interlude with Tola and Jair, this nice little breath of fresh air, we're plunged very sadly back into the darkness. God's people have not learned their lesson from the oppression of the past. Again, it's a simple word, but such a powerful word in this moment. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because of the Israelites, sorry, and because the Israelites forsook the Lord, sorry, that's half a sentence. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, we'll finish the sentence in a moment. Now, you have to remember that each time the Israelites turn away from the Lord, every time they do evil in the sight of the Lord, as we make our way through Judges, it's, it's a new generation. This is happening over generations. There, usually there's about, well, for instance, with here, between those two judges, we get about 40 years. And in the way that the Bible speaks, 40 years is roughly equivalent to a generation. So they might talk about the generation who died in the 40 years in the wilderness. So each new rebellion against God is a new generation. And so we, it signals two things to us. One that the human heart is sick with sin. Un unfortunately, sin is almost like a genetic attribute we pass on. Each person is born infected from their ancestors right back to Adam and Eve. When, when King David would later write a psalm, he would say, in sin, my mother did conceive me. And what he, he's not trying to say that his mother was having an affair. What he's trying to say is that there was sin involved right from conception that he was infected, that it was affecting him. Now, we might not actively commit sin uh, until we're, you know, as little children. Um, there is a, there's a sense of innocence born from the womb. But the issue is that it's not like we're born completely free from the effects of sin and then we grow up a bit and sin comes from the outside in. What, what's actually happened is sin has come with us as we are born. It means that in Judges, each successive generation can fall prey to the temptation that others have with, you know, gone through previously. It means sin goes with them wherever they go. But secondly, with this continual pattern, we keep wondering, 
did each generation of parents instruct the next about staying faithful to God? There's a significant theme in the Bible about passing on instruction to the next generation. And we can't help but assume that there was probably some holes in this in Israel, that they weren't doing a very good job of passing on the faith, not least because they didn't seem to be doing things. Later on, much later on, but much later on, uh, Josiah, a king of Israel, I'm sorry, king of Judah, would find the book of the law in the temple and they didn't even know what it was. God's word was that departed from them at that time. And I have a sneaking suspicion that it wasn't much better during the time of the judges. But going back to the text, we see a proliferation of false worship. Up until now, the main culprits have just been the Baals and the Asherah. So the Baals were the lords of the Philistines, the Canaanites, sorry, the Canaanite gods, the Baals of various kinds. But there was one particular Baal who got most of the airtime, who was a storm god, and they would often worship him in uh, conjunction with Asherah or Ashtoreth, the, the fertility gods. But what has been going on up until this point is we've just heard about the Baals and the Asherah mostly. And now we've reached this point in Judges, where they keep going back to the Baals and the Asherah, God keeps saving them from them. But now it's getting worse. It's not just the Baals and the Asherah, it's also the gods of Aram, which is another word for Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Now, if you trace a little uh, finger with where all these gods are from, you basically do this circuit around Israel and say, all the nations around Israel, they're serving all the gods of the nations around them and the gods from the nation, the, the Canaanites, who they were supposed to drive out of the land. So they've basically been completely given over. The slippery slope argument might seem prudish when we discuss matters of public morality, but here it is writ large. First, you mix your religion with, a little bit with the Canaanites, and then before you know it, you're in a mess of false pagan religions. And as you pursue sin, this reminds us that as we pursue sin, it's like you're feeding it. It grows and grows and grows and gets out of control. And so, as we look at this situation at this point in history, we go, where is God's people? Where? Where is his covenant people? Where are the holy ones who are set apart for God? They're all mixed in with everybody else. You can't tell the difference. They're lost in the pagan milieu. It's like a pure white sheet. You imagine you, you did the washing, you had a pure white sheet, and you went and you pushed it in the mud. It's impossible to see where the mud ends and the sheet starts because it's so soaked with the muck. This is God's holy people, God's clean people, who should be God's holy and clean people. And you can't tell where they end and the mud starts. And so this turning away is evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They were, let's think about the flip side of that. They weren't doing evil in their own eyes. They thought they were doing a good thing or the right thing. They were doing what they wanted. But it didn't matter what they thought was good. It matters what God says is good. And God says it was evil. But the same standard applies today. 
the same standard is in operation today. We have, we live in an age where what are we bent on doing? We're bent on everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. A phrase that's going to come up again in Judges. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And they say, you can't judge anybody else because everybody else basically has their own version of morality. But it doesn't matter. It's not workable. One person says this thing is evil. One person says completely the opposite is evil. We notice this as we kind of push, push as, in, as we represent God's morality in the world. We'll say, this thing is good. And people will say, no, that's traumatic for people. That causes, that causes harm. No, we don't want to know what is good in your eyes. We want to know what's good in God's eyes. God calls ev- people everywhere to turn to Him. And so I wonder uh, where you might be at at the moment. Perhaps you are, so to speak, represented by these Israelites. You've called on the name of the Lord. You've, you, you're a covenant person who belongs to God, but you've followed Him many years ago, but now your loyalty's grown cold. You've given up trying too hard. You'll happily mix a bit of Christianity into everything else you've got going on, but you're not going to sacrifice anything for God. You're not going to give up all the other stuff you've got going on to to serve the Lord alone. You give Him a nod every now and then, but otherwise, He's just a small part of your life while you pursue whatever captivates your heart. If that's you, I would encourage you to turn back to Him. Turn back to your covenant Saviour. Turn back to Him. Turn away from what is evil in God's sight. Turn toward what is good and right. Perhaps, though, you are like the nations around Israel and you have never known the Lord. You've never been loyal to Yahweh. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. But I want you to know that just because that has been what you have had, that is not where you need, you can, you don't need to stay there. You can repent and you can put your faith and trust in Jesus. You can become part of God's people. You can enter into the covenant with God and be joined together with His people if you would turn away from what is evil in God's eyes. You can enter in, you can be saved from the mark of the world in rebellion. You can come in by grace into God's family. But grace doesn't give us a free pass to sin, as is shown here. These is God's covenant people, the Israelites, but they weren't given a free pass to sin. No, their sin still angered God. God will still grow angry with their open disloyalty. (laughs) He became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east of the side of Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. And so we've seen, this is a pattern that we've seen time and time again in Judges, right? He sold them into the hands of their enemies. They turned their back on God. God said, okay, you've turned your back on me. You can have what you're pursuing. You can try it out. It reminds me that sometimes, try as we might, to learn from the experience of others, we have to make the dumb choices to learn from our own experience. And unfortunately for these guys, their dumb choice 
resulted in 18 years of oppression, who shattered and crushed them. They had to experience what they were really choosing, and God gives them over to it. And we see that in the world around us. Right now, as a culture, we're making some very dumb choices, and we risk being shattered and crushed by them. And we're starting to see the outcome of some of those choices. And it may be that we are collectively blind to the effects of our chosen path, and we'll have to suffer for a time under the oppression of our own making before God graciously delivers us from it. But the way out is not to keep doing more. The way out for, for, the, for people of any nation is not to pursue more and more different gods and try and find more and more different saviors. The way out for any people is to come to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oppression does bring us to our senses, and it does bring the Israelites to their senses. But in some sense, it's like the corrective discipline of a parent towards a child. There's a small consequence for sin that is there to steer us away from greater consequences. Greater consequences that might come from sin later in life. But 18 years is not exactly a small consequence, but in the scheme of history, it's not long. But they realize their problems and they cry out to God. When the Israelites cried, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. So they own up to their sin. They saw that their choices had not improved their lot. What had that gained them? It had gained them oppression. And this is the path of sin. Sin is the path to ruin. When you choose sin and when you pursue it, it runs into destruction. Now, it might be, take time. It might take time for the effects of your sin to come back around again, like planting a tree, like you plant a tree, and it takes time for it to bear fruit. And so we can be asking ourselves, are we sowing in righteousness or are we sowing in sin? Are we planting seeds that are going to bear the fruits of righteousness or the fruits of destruction? But these guys, oh, sorry, before we go on, I, I want to ask then, is your sin helping you? Is, is your sin a benefit to you? It might feel good in the moment, a short moment, a fleeting moment, but is it really long-term good for you? Is it something that sustains you and encourages you and builds you up? Is it something that leads to life and blessing and freedom in Christ? It's destructive. But we acknowledge that when, you know, for instance, when we're trapped in an addiction, we know that this is not going to help me, but we still keep going back to it and back to it and back to it. We need to be freed from the cycle. These guys know that they need to turn to the Lord. They need to turn to the source of life. They need to turn away from the destructive, oppressive forces that they've chosen. So they come back before God and they ask for mercy. They plead with Him. And I think that's what we ought to do as well. We need to come back to Him, to plead with Him, to plead him to, with Him to rid us of our disgrace, to take away our past mistakes, our present addictions and our future failures. Now, God is not obligated to save people who own up to their sin. 
But here's the beautiful and wonderful thing. God has promised that he will save people. God will save everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who fronts up to him and pleads for salvation will find it in him. God is not obligated, but he does. He freely gives. It's, it's, it's proclaimed in Joel, but it's also reiterated in Romans. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is the wonderful news. This is the wonderful news for Israel back then. That's the wonderful news for you right now, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This does not mean that you can say a magic prayer and everything will be sorted. You'll get a ticket to heaven. But what this means is when you turn to the Lord, when you come to Him, when you put yourself in His hands, He will save you. Come to Him, find salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, the Israelites have made their plea to the Lord. They said, we've sinned against you. And God responds. The Lord responds. And how does he respond to the call of Israel? With a history lesson. When the Egyptians, the Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? He's saying, I've got a track record of rescuing you. I've delivered you so many times. It's not funny. Uh, just uh, notice there, it says, the Lord replied. How did the Lord reply? We don't know. Maybe it was a prophet. But it's interesting how it's just presented here as this discussion between Israel and God. And we don't know how they were talking to each other. But the Lord replied, I've got a track record of saving you. And he continues... But you have forsaken me and served other gods. Despite what I've done for you so many times, you've served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. In their faithlessness, in their rebellion, is the reason that God will not act he says, go and try and get your help from your new gods. They're so good, you want them? Go and ask them. And we're left with this moment wondering, has God's patience run out? Is this the end for Israel? Has God given them over, finally and fully? Maybe there's no more of God's patience left. Well, in part, I think the problem is that the people hadn't actually repented yet. They called out to God and said, God, we've sinned against you, but they hadn't actually repented. The Israelites said to the Lord, Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. It seems like that they had called out to the Lord without out actually dealing with the issue. Now, what this is not saying is you need to clean yourself up for God. But what this is saying is you have to turn away from, you've got to turn away from the thing that is abhorrent to God, the thing that is the rebellion. We can't keep walking in rebellion against God and say, God, please, please save me so that I can keep pursuing my rebellion. It just it doesn't make sense. They needed to put away their idols. They needed to get rid of them. 
They got rid of the foreign gods among them. Now we see that true repentance is at work because true repentance will be evident. There will be outward change. There will be something that happens as a result of repentance. Repenting means turning around and going the opposite direction. You've got to repent. Turn away from what the problem is. For them, the problem was the foreign gods, and so they had to turn away from them. But we have this wonderful moment of hope here that maybe it's not quite the end. And he could, it says, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. God loves his people and he wants to save them. Even when they keep obviously pursuing a different path, he still wants to save them. One of the, th- one of the turns of phrase that is good to remember is that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And so God has placed his covenant love on these people and it's not like his love can just evaporate and disappear. God has his love and his purpose on these people. And so he will save them. He will save them. God's love for his people will overcome even their own sin. God's love for us will overcome our sin. We're not beyond his love because of our sin. I have this wonderful reminder from Romans chapter 8. I'm convinced that neither life, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's people are never beyond God's love. There is nothing that can stand in the way between God's people and Him with His love. And that means that Christians have the opportunity to deal with their sin before the Lord. Friends, we, we feel the shame of our sin. Like the Israelites, we, have, we recognize that we've done the wrong thing. But the beautiful and wonderful thing about the grace of God and, and the security that we have with Him is that we can come forward and we can say, here, this is the atrocious stuff that I've done. And we bring it to light and it can be dealt with. That sin that is not helping you it can, be, it can be dealt with. There can be restitution made. There can be seeking forgiveness and healing. But as long as it is kept in the dark, as long as it is held on to, as long as it is our idol, so to speak, then we are walking in rebellion against God. But, but there is freedom in Christ to be able to expose these things and deal with them. Your, your awful sins of your past and your present are not going to separate you from the love of God. You can find this redemption through Jesus Christ. It means God rescues his people once for all. Let's just, we'll, we'll close, we're coming to the end of this passage. Um, and this is kind of the setup for Jephthah, which is coming next week. It just says, When the Ammonites were called to arms and encamped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. So this is where things have got to in the nation in in Gilead. They don't say, Lord, will you raise up a judge for us? They say, we will try and convince people to fight the battles 
because they will get a power, position of power and authority. If you go to war for us, we will make you king, basically, or make you a leader. So trying to, it's not on the basis of righteousness, it's on the basis of kind of self, um, who wants to get ahead? Who wants to be the guy in charge? Well, that's the guy that we want to go to battle for us. It's not looking good. But we'll finish talking about Jephthah next week. As we close, we remember in this passage, we remember we remember our need to come and confess our sin before the Lord. We remember that everyone who comes and calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We remember that we don't need to hide anything from God because he knows it all. We remember that God is jealous for his people and that there is nothing that can separate us from his love. God's love will overcome all barriers. And so if we circle back around to our opening illustration, when we're in the hole, when we're in the pit, when we are lost in our muck, in our grime, in our sin, in our rebellion, Christ comes and lifts us out. And he lifts his people out and he says, don't jump back in the hole. And that is my admonishment to you this morning. When the Lord pulls you out of the hole, don't jump back in it. It is not good for you. God wants you free from it. He wants his people holy and cleansed and free. So stop jumping in the hole. But when you're in the hole, the only way out is through Christ. Look to him.